But the hand is quicker than the eye, and we've got sights that mystify. So you just sit back and watch it all on This Week in Baseball. Welcome to The Internet Says It's True, a show where we learn something new every week, part of the WCBE podcast experience. My name is Michael Kent, and I've got another interesting story this week. This podcast is about stories that most people don't know about, and this week's story is one that was probably widely covered at the time, but most people today don't know about it. It's also about an underrepresented community getting slighted, and I think it's important to amplify these types of stories. As always, I want to invite you to be a part of this podcast by supporting us, so please go over to patreon.com slash Kent to see if that's something you can do to help keep this show going. If you want a producer credit at the end of the show, you can do that there as well. But you can also just join at the $1 a month level also, and it'll it'll all be super, super appreciated. I wanted to say congratulations to last week's Hidden Contest winner. I hit a contest somewhere in the podcast, and Jim found it and tweeted the answer to me. We're continuing that again this week. I'm going to eliminate Jim from the running for this week. We'll make it a you-can-only-win-once rule for now. So listen for that. This week's topic comes to us from me. This is a story that I've heard about and I've been interested in for a while, but I've just never done the research on it. It's about Dodger Stadium and Chavez Ravine and the displaced Mexican-American community that lived there. It started with me just seeing the headline, and I thought it would make a good episode for this week. It reminds me of one of my favorite episodes of the early version of this podcast. If you go back to the first season when I was calling it Tell Me What to Google, the second episode was about Seneca Village, which was another displaced community. For this one, we're going to start about 30 years after the story takes place. It was September of 1980 when 19-year-old Mexican pitcher Fernando Valenzuela first took the mound at Dodger Stadium. He quickly earned his spot, not only as the Dodgers' star pitcher, but as the reason that fans came to games. In 1981, he won both the Rookie of the Year and Cy Young Awards, started the season 8-0 with five shutouts and forever changed the fandom of the Los Angeles Dodgers. See, before Fernando, about 10% of the Dodgers fan base was Latino. Today, it's close to half. The pitcher, who had been given the nickname El Toro, was a huge hit. When the Dodgers traveled to other stadiums around the league, Attendance would increase between five and 10,000 fans when he was scheduled to start. Spanish-speaking ushers were hired at Dodger Stadium. Los Angeles was captivated, and the Dodgers, an important part of the city's identity, was finally connecting with the Latino demographic that made up almost 30% of LA. But under Dodger Stadium, the land holds a painful memory that's forgotten by most people today. It's a history of a displaced Mexican-American community. Chavez Ravine is an L-shaped canyon in Los Angeles. It sits in the hills just north of downtown LA. Today, it's made up of Elysian Park, the LAPD Police Academy, Radio Hill Gardens, Angels Point, and taking up most of the land in the middle, Dodger Stadium. It was named for Julian Chavez, who was a councilman in Los Angeles in the 1830s and 40s. He was the original owner of Chavez Ravine, which was at the time called Stone Quarry Hills. The land in Chavez Ravine was never home to affluence or power. In fact, the opposite was true. When the city suffered from the smallpox epidemics of the 1850s and 1880s, it was the site of what they called pest houses, 
These were the nicknames given for wards to house Mexican and Chinese Americans suffering from the disease. At one point, part of the ravine served as a Jewish cemetery, the first organized Jewish site in Los Angeles. Most of the people who lived in the ravine were Mexican Americans. By the 1940s, it was split between the communities of Bishop, La Loma, and Palo Verde. And because of redlining housing discrimination, these neighborhoods were mostly made up of Mexican Americans. Most of these neighborhoods were in the hills around the ravine, but there remained a community of houses in the rough terrain that was Chavez Ravine itself. They were a tight-knit community of around 1,500 families within 315 acres. They had their own church, elementary school, and grocery store, but it wasn't an affluent area. And the city started labeling this area as, quote, blighted. Blighted is one of these racially charged words that's most commonly used to describe ethnic minority communities. Around this time, there was also a national push for public housing. Harry Truman's Housing Act of 1949 provided government funds to build housing for those who needed it. In Los Angeles, the LA Housing Authority saw Chavez Ravine as the perfect place to build public housing. Between 1952 and 1953, almost the entire community that lived in the Chavez Ravine was destroyed. The buildings were acquired through eminent domain. Some people were paid undervalued amounts for their land and others refused to leave. For those who left, their houses were bulldozed to make room for the public housing. It was to be a planned project community called Elysian Park Heights. For the 20-some families who held out and didn't move, the offers for their land decreased over time in an oppressive tiered buyout scheme. But this public housing plan came to a screeching halt with the 1953 election of Mayor Norris Polson. He ran on an anti-public housing platform and gained support from a group known as Citizens Against Socialist Housing. He called such housing projects un-American and communist. So the public housing project slated for Chavez Ravine was stopped in its tracks. The community had been mostly removed and nothing was in its place. The stipulation of the eminent domain order that was used to remove the people who lived there stated that the city would own the land and it had to be used for public purposes. Several proposals were made, one of them being a new location for the LA Zoo. While his Republican politics led him to kill the possibility of public housing, Norris Paulson's term as mayor of LA brought a lot of things to the city. The Los Angeles International Airport, the expanded LA Harbor, and for the first time, a major league baseball team. When we come back from a quick break, we'll take a trip to the East Coast. It's been colder lately, and I have photos on my Instagram of me wearing one of my favorite clothing items for this time of year, my Scotty Vest fleece. It is awesome for traveling around because it has pockets for all of my gadgets, for my phone, my glasses, my wallet, my charging cord, you name it. It's a clothing company I believe in, and I'm confident that they've got an article of clothing that you'll love. The best thing you can do is take a look at all the awesome pocket-packed clothing on their website. Go to scottyvest.com and enter promo code TM15, that's Tango Mike 15, and you'll get 15% off your order. The link is in my show notes. There was a time that humans used 100% organic products as healing balms and moisturizers for their skin. Well, I've partnered with an awesome company that wants to get back to those times. Fatco sells organic and responsibly made tallow-based skincare products. For centuries, humans used tallow in skin moisturizers and healing bombs, but unfortunately, the topical application of these fats 
seemed to stop around the same time that animal fats stopped being considered part of a healthy diet. A lot of modern skincare products do more harm than good by stripping your skin of its natural oils. Let's change that. You can try them out now at fatco.com and get 15% off your order by using my promo code INTERNET. Go to theinternetsaysitstrue.com slash deals for the link. All right, here's this week's contest for you. I'll send a $10 Amazon gift card to the first person who tweets me at Michael Kent and tells me the name of the cereal mentioned in the first episode of this podcast. The first person to tweet that to me publicly wins 10 bucks. Let's get back to the story. It was 1957, and the Brooklyn Dodgers had been dominating Major League Baseball for over a decade. They played at Ebbets Field in Crown Heights. By the way, here's a little bit of extra trivia for you. When Jack Norworth and Albert Von Tilzer wrote that song in 1908, neither one of them had ever seen a baseball game. Ebbets Field was old. It was built in 1913, and it was overused. Not only did the Brooklyn Dodgers play there, but so did five different professional football teams and a college team. The Dodgers had won seven pennants in the last 10 years, but couldn't sell out a game. Ebbets Field had 35,000 seats, but the problem was that it was surrounded by city on all sides. There was no parking. It couldn't expand. They needed a new home. Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley chose to move the team to Los Angeles after a lengthy fight with the New York City Building Commissioner who tried to secure land for the team in Queens. But O'Malley had heard about a tract of land in Los Angeles that had been cleared for public use. And on June 3, 1958, Los Angeles voters approved a taxpayer referendum on using the land for a baseball stadium. Many LA residents opposed it. They didn't think a baseball stadium was considered public use. Out of 677,000 votes cast, it passed with a margin of only 25,000 votes. The stadium would be built. It would seat 56,000, and the entire land acquisition would be 352 acres. One year later, the Arechiga family was throwing rocks at police. Remember, there were still a small number of residents of Chavez Ravine who refused to move. But at this point, the LA County Sheriff's Department had no choice. They had to clear the land. The Arechiga family had lived there for generations, but now the sheriff's deputies had come to forcibly remove them. It was too late to accept payment for their land. It was no longer being offered. Elderly Manuel and Abrana Arechiga watched as police first carried away their adult daughter, Aurora Vargas. She was a war widow living in the ravine with her parents. 72-year-old Abrana threw rocks at the officers. It was a two-hour ordeal. All the residents were removed. Vargas was briefly put in jail for resisting arrest. Only minutes later, bulldozers flattened their house. They lived in tents on the area of their land to protest, and for a short time gained some support from the citizens of Los Angeles. But when construction started on Dodger Stadium the next month, public support for the displaced families waned. Eight million cubic yards of earth were moved to fill in and flatten out the space in the middle of the ravine. The elementary school wasn't even removed, they just buried it. It's still there today underneath the Northwest parking lot. The people and the families of those who were moved call themselves Los Desterrados, the Uprooted. It's probably important at this point to talk about the title of this episode. It wasn't really the Dodgers who killed their community. 
The Dodgers just sealed its fate. The thing that killed the community is the way that society sees poor or minority neighborhoods. It was a target. When the homes of Chavez Ravine were wiped out, a few of the structures that weren't demolished were sold to Universal Studios. One of them even appears as the house of Atticus Finch in the 1962 film To Kill a Mockingbird. Dodger Stadium was built with private money, but it was a city project. The stadium revitalized downtown Los Angeles. It was the first major upgrade to downtown LA in decades. After seeing businesses downtown start to disappear, it began to bring excitement and commerce to the area. If you look at that area today, it's buzzing with luxury apartments, expensive restaurants, museums, and concert venues. Dodger Stadium is a beautiful ballpark. At 56,000, it's the largest stadium in Major League Baseball and definitely has brought some good to the area. But the stadium, home to a team with a 50% Spanish-speaking fan base, has a dark past. And while it was news at the time, most people today don't realize the pain and anguish that occurred to create the stadium as we know it today. Now, it's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend, and today I'm calling comedian and magician Harrison Greenbaum. Harrison was described by Time Out New York and the New York Daily News as the hardest working man in comedy. He's been on a handful of television shows, the winner of both the Andy Kaufman Award and the Senator Crandall Award for originality and creativity, and he's here to play the quiz game with me. Harrison, it is great to see you and great to have you on the internet says it's true. How have you been? It's good. I've been, it's, uh, it's been a wacky roller coaster of a couple of years. But, yeah. You're uh, alive and, uh, that's, that's good. <laughs> I saw your schedule. You're, you're gigging a lot right now. Like you're, you're hitting a lot of stages in person, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, the New York scene is bouncing back and, uh, yeah, working all the comedy clubs and starting to kick up the touring again. So it's been really fun. So I heard, um, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Eric, who's, who's been on this podcast a million times. Um, he said, like, some of the shows you have to show vaccination proof just to get in. Is that still a thing? Um, I, up until very recently, that was every New York comedy club. You had to show proof of vaccination. Um, okay. I think you were allowed to show a negative PCR taken within, I want to say, 48 to 72 hours. Um, so up until very, very recently, I think literally this month, it might have just started to change. But up until then, literally every single person had to be vaccinated to be at the club. That's crazy. I, I actually had to show vaccination just to eat at a Thai restaurant in L.A. last week. Uh, I, I like it. It makes uh, yeah, it feel I safer. I it think does. I'm going to take my mask off. I'd rather be only around the, the vaccinated. Yeah, I was the um, only so person. I'm not, in the, I'm not <laughs> Sure. I was the only person in the restaurant. And it was what was funny about it. It was like, I'm like, this is super cool. But then two days later, I'm watching the Super Bowl in L.A. No masks, nothing. Everyone's just right. like. Uh, you know, screaming and mouths open and spitting on each other. It was awesome. Yeah, I mean, I did. I brought my full magic show to Florida in I think it was around October. And uh, I don't think they know that the pandemic happened. No, they haven't gotten that news yet. <laughs> They've been shielded from that news very, very carefully. So yeah. let's move on to our topic. And for this first question, Harrison, we're playing for a joke. So if you get it right, I have to tell you a joke. If you get it wrong, you have to tell me one. That's the stakes. Right. Here is the question. Dodger Stadium holds what dark secret a oh god am i on a sports themed episode no this is screwed <laughs> it's not I, I don't think i think it's pretty obvious based on uh literally everything about me that i am not good at sports <laughs> like, i remember when i was in middle school i went up to the coach i was like when are the football auditions he's like get the hell out of the gym 
<laughs> I was like, but I love your costumes. Costumes. I can't come to the, the football rehearsals. Not, yeah. I can't even be a football understudy. None of that. <laughs> there, there's, this is sort of laterally related to sports, but you don't have to know about sports for the episode. Okay, good. This is particularly, uh, particularly about a sports stadium. So Dodger Stadium in LA, it holds what dark secret? A, there's a Cold War era government bomb shelter deep beneath the earth where it's built. B, a community of Mexican-Americans were forcibly removed to build the stadium. Or C, a construction worker killed during the building of the field is still buried underneath Section 3A of the parking lot. I feel like B seems like a wild swing for you to make up. (laughs) Just pick a random ethnic group out of your ass and be like yeah they were forcibly removed and like just kidding i was making that up that seems wild to me so i feel like it has to be b and if it's not b man we have some talking to do <laughs> you are correct the answer is oh, b thank God. A community thank God. of mexican americans were forcibly removed to build the stadium i realized how specific that is and that's why i yeah. added the section of the parking lot in the next one. I was like, man, I'm going to have to add some details to these fake ones. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, uh, it's true. Um, there was, it was a community called Chavez ravine and, um, much like the community that used to be where central park is in New York. Uh, it was labeled by the, the powerful white people in the area as blighted quote blighted. And that allowed them to use eminent domain to underpay these residents. And some didn't get paid at all to be gone. And that's where Dodger Stadium is today. That that used to be a community. So, like I Isn't said, is it fun that they use taxpayer money to build these stadiums? Well, when that stadium they're businesses that generate <laughs> millions of dollars in revenue. Yeah, right. That stadium, that believe fun? it or not, is a is a privately owned and was privately built and was the first one that was since like the 1920s or something like that. But yeah, most of them are heavily taxpayer supported. And of course, yeah. this was the the it was taxpayer money that was used to clear the land. And to to claim eminent domain. And um, that was a big fight at the time because they said the residents said, hey, this is earmarked. They they removed these people because eminent domain said it has to be used for public use. And they were arguing a baseball stadium that's, like you said, generating revenue. (laughs) Yeah, is not public use. I owe you a joke because you got this one right. So uh, here's the joke. Why do ducks have feathers? Um. Because they probably look like horrifying bird monsters if they didn't have them. <laughs> that is accurate, but the correct answer is to cover their butt quacks. Boo. Oh, nice. Can I tell you, so I, as, a, as, a, as a comedian, I would say sure. I don't really do like street jokes. Sure. Like uh, uh, like jokey jokes. Right. But um, every once in a while, I end up in an Uber and I mistakenly tell them I'm a comedian. So yeah. then they expect all their <laughs> right. stories. Sure. The key is tell them you're an accountant and they will rarely have any questions for yeah, you. That is, that is a good That is a good point. But I was getting picked up for a gig. They were driving me from uh, Connecticut, where the gig was, is like a corporate thing, to back to my uh, apartment in Manhattan. And the guy goes, oh, where are you coming from? And I go, oh, I'm doing a comedy show. And he goes, oh, tell me a joke. And this is my favorite joke, um, which is, how do you make a plumber cry? How? Murder his family. <laughs> and that guy literally just did not speak to me for the rest of the ride. Well, there's a good chance that man's family had been murdered and you were just, you know, speaking the truth. 
but yeah, this he's is like, how come they always bring up the family murder? It's all they want to talk about. <laughs> I also have hobbies. I like painting miniatures. No one asks me about my miniatures. Uh, <laughs> I love Warhammer. Stop talking about that one night a serial killer came and murdered my family. Ubering from Connecticut at a gig home to Manhattan is a doable thing. Uh, if the client is paying for it. Okay. Now, uh, <laughs> No, it's uh, it's not terrible. I mean, basically, you kind of have to balance out whether owning a car, the, ex- yeah. the full expense of owning a car is worth every once in a while overpaying for an Uber. Yeah. And, you know, for my traveling shows, like I'm constantly wondering that for renting, like, is it is so if I because renting cars dur- during and after the pandemic has gotten crazy in some cities. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, to rent a car for one day would be three hundred dollars. And at that point, I'm like, no, an Uber Makes sense. And, and I have to, definitely cheaper. Yeah. I have to look that up every time now. Yeah, this was pre-pandemic. Now post-pandemic, like right when the pandemic was starting to loosen up, everybody was starting to get vaccinated. We were doing these like outdoor shows on roofs and like anywhere where we can get lots of social distance. And some of them were like deep in Brooklyn. And it was literally cheaper for me to get like a zip car and drive myself than to Uber. <laughs> oh my that God. weird math version. So I was renting cars to do gigs that were like 30 minutes away from me. Um, but it, yeah, the math, the math keeps shifting. (laughs) Yeah. And when I perform in New York city, I usually rent a car because it's so embarrassing with all of my like road cases to, Mm. to take public transportation. Um, you know, that's why most New York magicians do close up. (laughs) (laughs) There are very few grand illusionists that live in Manhattan. Yeah. And, and I don't even have that much stuff, but it's enough that it would be really tough to bring it through like a turnstile. Or, right. you know, like I'm not, I'm not gonna... really good about that. There's a, my, my suitcase literally is just tall enough to clear the turnstile. Nice. So if I pull the handle down, I can push it through. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's very much a New York uh, luggage system. Uh, so let's move on to question two. For this question, we're playing for an embarrassing story from the stage. So if you get it wrong, you've got to tell me some embarrassing story of something. I started something. on stage once. <laughs> yeah, if oh, you wait, get I the, have question, to the question, we can, I see, I you see. can tell us in detail about it if you get the question wrong. <laughs> You can explain why, maybe what you had for dinner that night. If uh, if you get it right, I'll tell you one of my stories. Okay. Which one of these is true of Dodger Stadium? A, it has its own zip code. B, it has its own fire department. Or C, it makes its own hot dogs. Making its own hot dogs sounds like the worst possible idea. There's no way that there, uh, there's also pigs and that, that can't, that can't be I'm pretty sure Upton St. Clair put a stop to that. Um, that's a deep cut. I was like, that you know was what? there's going to be two people who get that joke and they're going to love it. Yes. They're yes. Love it. And they both live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> they're both, they're both college professors. That's who right. Signed that book. Um, it's not, I don't think it's the sausages. The fire department also sounds like a misuse of municipal funds because there could be a fire at Dodger stadium, but I feel like, Every once in a while, they might want to put out a fire somewhere else, say in the neighboring area. The zip code thing speaks to me only because um, I know the Empire State Building has its own zip code. Oh, does it? In New York, because there's so many offices and such in there. So it's not out of the realm of possibility for a building or landmark to have its own zip code. Um, So I think I'm going to say A. You are correct. You're two for two. Dodger Stadium zip code 90090 and is technically known as, quote, Dodger Town. Dodger Town, go. California. Nice. I, I will. I'm still happy to tell you about the time I started. Let's off. let's hear it. I want to hear it anyway. And then I'll tell you one of mine. By the way, the hot dogs at Dodger Stadium are made by Papa Cantella's, if you care. 
Papa Cantella. The, I picture an old Italian man with a very mustachy beard you that has to put in its own little yeah. plastic casing to protect it from going into the sausage. It's a big contract for Papa yeah. and his mustache. I hope he doesn't refer to himself as like, Papa's got a payday. I just don't want that. Uh, no, I, I, I was dating a girl and uh, I had a show on Valentine's Day, but I was like, let me take you out to a nice restaurant before my show and then we'll go to my show. Because it was, a, it was a, a weekly show that I was uh, producing. Um, and we went to a Mexican restaurant, a very spicy Mexican restaurant, because it was close to the gig, and I ate a ton. Uh, and then I got on stage, and like halfway through uh, a long set, I was like, oh, I have to fart, but if I just do it kind of quietly, no one will hear it. I'm talking into a microphone, I'll time it, and uh, <laughs> hopefully it won't, the, spell, the spell, smell won't pass the beginning, you know? And uh, no, I shit myself. I definitely sharted. <laughs> oh, I sharted. No. I felt it. I knew it immediately. I had 20 minutes left of my set. And damn it, I did those 20 minutes. I stayed very still. Very, very still. Oh, my God. And then I wa- I kind of booked it to the bathroom, threw my uh, underwear in the trash. This wow. was like, these are done. Yeah. Uh, cleaned myself off, went right back and said, thank you to the audience. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, that takes a level of perseverance and <laughs> dedication to the, to your craft. Here's just a quick story. Now, I don't know that this is, is as interesting as yours, but I do owe you one. This, this happened two years ago, three years ago, right before the pandemic, doing a strolling gig for a corporate client. And I had worked for this corporate client two or three times. So, you know, good client. And I cut my finger in the car. I don't remember what I did to cut my finger on the drive downtown and it was bad. Like it was one of those where it just kept bleeding for whatever reason. And I, I had a bandaid in like with me, I put the bandaid on, but by the time I got into, it was at this like speakeasy um, bar. And I like, by the time I got in there, it was the bandaid was falling off because there was so much blood. It was disgusting. I got there. I went to the bathroom, cleaned up, asked the bartender if they had any bandages. Of course they did. They gave me a bandaid and I started performing the first group I performed for the CEO is there. And I'm like, good, this is great, you know, and I'm doing a, I, I remember I was performing John Bannon's duplicity for him. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's a point where, a part where they hold some of the cards and you hold some of the cards. And I think there's, I remember reading the book and there was some part that said it's more, uh, it's more deceptive if there's blood everywhere. This, this, I tested that theory on this night. <laughs> I looked down and the cards that he was holding had a fresh, wet drop of blood on them. You're like, is your card a red card? And they're like, no. And you're like, well, now it is. Uh, oh, Very my God. Red. If I were as witty as you, I would have said that. Um, but I just sort of looked down in horror as I had bled through yet another Band-Aid. And he's holding cards with blood on them and knows exactly where it came from. And we're in this horrible hazmat situation. I had to just kind of grab the cards back from him and not continue and and excused myself. It was super embarrassing. The scar is from a similar thing. Is it really? I, uh, I was doing a, I was in college. So I didn't have a car, uh, theme of this is the theme (laughs) of the shows, not having a car. So I was taking a train to a gig outside of Massachusetts for like an SYM. It was for kids. Um, and I didn't know, I was like, I knew that if I, like the train was pulling in and I was like, is this my stop? And I was like, I knew if I didn't get out, and I missed the stop, then getting another train back, I would have missed the gig because of the way the schedule was. Yeah. So the train starts pulling out of the station. I'm like, oh my God, this was the correct spot. So I'm like, I can just jump off the train. It, it's not, it can't be going that fast. <laughs> oh, and no. I jumped off a moving train. What? 
and I Superman and I was bleeding <gasps> everywhere. There's still scar. Like this, it's hard to see now. Oh my gosh. See that little scar over here? Yeah, yeah. That was, that was one of the parts that didn't heal. So I'm bleeding everywhere. And then I get to the gig and it's for children. Oh. And it's just blood coming out of my hands. Hey, I'm the magic bleeding, bleeding magician. I'm, I'm here to entertain the children. <laughs> Oh, that is not. I did get. I did uh, get bit once during a gig. Um, there was a, a a woman at a. It was like a nice cocktail party, and she was. I was just being disruptive, and she. I. She was trying to pull something out of my hand, and I pulled my hand behind my back. She ran behind my back and bit my finger and drew blood. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was like I pulled. I only drew blood because I pulled my hand out of her mouth. Like I felt her biting me, and I pulled my hand out, and then there was blood. It was the end of the event. So first time I had worked with the promoter, I went to the promoter and I said, hey, um, I don't want to make a big deal of this, but one of your guests just bit me. Yeah. <laughs> and he was this like really tall, like Middle Eastern guy with like an English accent. And he goes, um, bit you? Right. <laughs> I said, yeah, I don't want to make a big deal of it, but we need a first aid kit. And so I went and like found a first aid kit and cleaned it all up. And I actually went and got like a, a hepatitis test a few weeks later just to make sure I was all, all good. But you know, if a woman, a grown woman is crazy enough to bite another human, she's probably done some stuff in her life that you might want to get tested about. So I mean, this is the saddest superhero origin story I have ever heard. <laughs> I feel like the only superpower you got is that you can sense Rose from yeah. blocks away. <laughs> like I think somebody opened a fresh bottle of Rose. I don't know how, when I got this sense or tingle, but it started when a Trump lady bit me. Dun, a, da, 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 super Karen. That's amazing. Uh, super Karen. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're two for two. Let's go to question three. For this question, we're playing for a coveted The Internet Says It's True sticker. They're three inches by three inches. They're very hard to come by and extremely valuable. I just ordered more, though. The Dodgers do a great job of embracing their Latino fandom. This includes celebrating what Mexican three-day holiday with decorations and souvenir t-shirts? Is it A, Cinco de Mayo, B, Dia de los Muertos, or C, Candelaria? Ooh, my, before you started reading the choices, I was like Cinco de Mayo, although it is called Cinco de Mayo, which means it's probably one day the Cinco de Mayo. Uh, Dia de los Muertos uh, does have the word Dia in it, which is day, which is a single day. And so I'm trying to rack my brains if either one of those is a multiple day. I know Dia de los Muertos, they do a lot. There's lots of things that happen. And then your final option is not specifically tied to a day as far as I know. Um, man, but also it's the Dodgers who so feel like they, they want to celebrate the big ones. Like Cinco de Mayo is a big one. Like people celebrate it whether they know what the holiday is or not. Uh, Dia de los Muertos, slightly less popular than Cinco de Mayo in terms of drunk people. Wow, this is a toughie. Mm -hmm. Can I phone a friend? <laughs> yes, that friend is me. Oh, that friend is Coco. It was who I was going to call. Yeah, just call the movie real quick. <laughs> um, hmm, so you said it's a three-day holiday. Yeah, Mexican three-day holiday. Um, what's that? I also it's a said three day holiday and they celebrate with flags, uh, decorations and souvenir t-shirts, souvenir t-shirts. I just feel like from a marketing standpoint, they're probably going to lean into Cinco de Mayo because that's the holiday that even the 
dumbest white people would know. Final answer. Oh, you're still you're still on the fence. I I can tell it by your face. I'm so conflicted. I'm going to say a I'm going to say a the answer is Dia de los Muertos. Oh, I was so close. So close. Uh, yeah, they, they call it the Dia, Dia de los Dodgers event. Uh, and Ooh, it, it celebrates I have of that. Yeah, Dia de los Muertos every September. Dude, they said they were marketing. Yes. Dia de los. Oh, that's very good. It was all about the t shirt. The t shirt is where it is because, uh, yeah, I mean, the Dodgers and the. If you look at like the, the iconography of Dia de los Muertos, is beautiful with the skulls and everything. So. Yeah, that's uh, that was a tough one. Some of these are really tough, but although I did just Google it because I had a feeling, yeah, the Dodgers do celebrate Cinco de Mayo. They call it Mexican Heritage Night. Oh, oh, they do also celebrate Cinco de Mayo in a big way and print up T-shirts. Okay, I'm going to check with the judges real quick. They say yes, we can give you the sticker. You are three for three. You have maintained yes! with a last-minute Google have maintained your yes. uh, your your streak. Thank you, judges. And uh, I've never had anyone challenge a ruling on the podcast before. Yes, I just had a feeling. I was like, I, I just knew it. And so that was the first time I pulled up my brows. <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, let me just let me just see. <laughs> I could make all of these up because no one has ever checked any of them. But I really do find these go. things. I have uh, trusted you on all the other ones. I do want a Dia de los Dodgers t-shirt, though. That sounds pretty awesome. I will tell you the sports part, not in my wheelhouse, but I was the head writer of a late night show on Telemundo. Okay. And I made tens and tens of pesos. <laughs> and uh, so the, our biggest audience was uh, Mexico. Mexico, was, of all the Spanish countries, Mexico was the biggest chunk of the Telemundo audience. That's awesome. Now, what, what television show was that? Tonight con Lorenzo Paro. Ooh. Uh, and he was un payaso de España. He was a clown from Spain. Uh, a literal like honk honk red nose clown and when they brought him to america they were like can you take him to comedy clubs and show him like what a late night host looks like in america and there were times where he really wanted to put the red nose on <gasps> i was like take that off your face oh no you're a late it's... night host now and we're we're trying to keep you from being a, just a full-on clown wow now do you yeah, speak spanish nice or you're just nice. you're just working with spanish-speaking writers and how, how does that work is there a language yeah, and barrier? Also a very attractive guy so i was like take the nose off like this yeah. is you're a good looking dude. You don't need to cover your face. Um, but uh, yeah, we we did the script. Uh, a lot of the script in the beginning phases would be in English. Everyone was pretty bilingual. Yeah. So we would kind of write it in English, lock it in, and then translate it to Spanish. And then I would check it to make sure it was translated correctly, because sometimes it, it wasn't. And then we'd have weird fights where like, uh, there's about 17 different words for underwear in Spanish, depending on what country you're from. There's so many different ways to say underwear. Um, just like if, if you said in English undergarments, yeah. you would know what I meant sure. if I said my undergarments got soiled, but you would also be like, why did you just use the word undergarments? <laughs> no human being uses that. So there would be lots of stuff because we were going out to all the different Spanish countries where you're constantly like spending 45 minutes discussing how we're going to translate underwear. Yeah. And that might not be that much different than just finding the funniest word. You know, that's that's another like you might country wise because so, <laughs> some countries have funnier words, but it would only really read in Ecuador. Uh, right. like the Ecuadorian word. Th- they would love it. But then the other p- other countries would be like, what? That's really interesting. Yeah. They kind of yeah. the Spanish speaking countries get grouped together uh, where yeah, regional, yeah. regional differences. Wow. Well, you're uh, you're two for three. This is question four. 
I know you're, you're, for three, you're three for you're three for three with the the judge's ruling and the and the, the overturning. There might you might get an asterisk on this one. Question four for this question: We're playing for a, a a podcast plug on your favorite social media. So just a mention of this show. Wow. From 1962. Now this one's a sports question. I will uh, I will I'll, I'll preface it that way. This from 1962 oh, no. to 1965, the rival Los Angeles Angels played at Dodger Stadium while their stadium in Anaheim was being built. Mm. What petty thing did they do during that time? So they did one of these things. A, they stole Dodger uniforms and burned them. B, they refused (laughs) to call it Dodger Stadium and referred to it as Chavez Ravine. Or C, they hired stuntmen to do burnouts in the parking lot, which then had to be cleaned and relined. The first one sounds really aggressive. (laughs) Did they just... Burned it like it was Fahrenheit 451. That seems weird to just burn the other team's uniform. I think that's a crime. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's a, that's a, a literal crime. So I'm going to eliminate A. I don't think they committed a full-on crime. B sounds heady, but like maybe even a little too heady. Because I really, I really want C to be true because it sounds fun. And you brought it up, and that does sound like the most fun one. So I'm going to go... I I feel like that's C sound C sounds like my that C is the answer I want to be right. And is that the one you're gonna choose? Yes. Okay. It is B. They oh. refused to call it Dodger Stadium. They referred to it as Chavez Ravine. And the reason I call that petty is because here I think that there's something behind I think they know and they knew at the time this history because it was called Chavez Ravine before. It was Dodger Stadium when people lived there. And I think they wanted to just kind of twist the knife a little bit as you displaced a minority community. And so we're going to remind everyone of that by calling it Chavez Ravine instead of Dodger Stadium. No, that's good. But man, if they had hired the stunt drivers, that sounds fun. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) They'd be after my own heart with that kind of thing. So, I, yeah, I just realized that two of the fake answers I made up have been parking lot related. So maybe I had a thing in my head about parking lots. Noted for the next question. Yeah, there, there is a, a bit in this story about the fact that when there, there was an elementary school as part of this community and they didn't tear it down. They literally buried it with cement. And it, so they say that that elementary school legitimately still is there in the part underneath the parking lot northwest of the stadium. So. That's probably was in my head. Creepy, scary movie that could be written. It really is a good premise for like a the haunted Dodgers. You know, with the industry being so close to that stadium, I'm surprised that movie hasn't been made. Yeah. Uh, Let's let's move on. Your three for four. Unless you want to challenge that one, do you have a challenge? You're you're googling right now, aren't you? I do have a tagline. (laughs) School's out. All right. Well, you can. I'll let you. School's out. Dot 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 for them. Question mark. Question mark. I'll let you. I like it because there is the displaced community like subplot. You know, there's like an there's like a um, an actual message. The the true villains are capitalism. That's true. Yeah. That's that's. I'll let you pitch this if you can. You can have control. (laughs) Uh, Question five. And Harrison, this is the last question, and it's for all the marbles. If you get this wrong, I'm banning you from this podcast, never to be asked on again. Literal marbles. Literal marbles. I can maybe send a couple. I don't know how. I'm not sure where to find a marble in 2022, but I don't know if I own marbles. Well, I did when I was a kid. I'm sure Etsy's got you got you covered. Uh, 
This you know is what a- I fooled around with that karatsuke genre of mentalism with balls and bags. You wait, start wait, what? <laughs> start over. Uh okay. <laughs> Oh no! I've, I, I there was a I feel like you, yeah, but you used had, a like, you uh, used a Japanese word that I wasn't one hundred percent. Oh, Max Maven called uh, his version karatsuke, um, but it's that basically there's like usually there's four white balls and one black ball. Oh, bag, I know. Okay, to figure out who who's chosen the black ball. I, I know exactly the plot you're thinking about now. Okay, and there's the reverse, and there's all different other it, the whole genre. I, sure. So I was fooling around just in that space. I had this uh, joke that I was trying to turn into a trick, um, and that felt like the right way. Um, but yeah, I also like the fact that I brought balls and bags back. And now one way or the other, we're getting a ball bag reference. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't understand the reference that he's talking about, it has it's a part that has been cut out of the podcast. <laughs> but you can you, you can, can figure it out now. I've laid down the clues. <laughs> if you want to hear that discussion, join Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and hear me talk about balls and bags. And, yeah, and magically, for those who are listening on the, the, the radio edit, uh, just imagine I'm only describing the magic trick, but I've used it for a long time. And those balls have stretched out the bag. <laughs> you would think the bag would be made better, but the weight of, uh, only a couple of them yeah. were enough to stretch it out over time. That's, that's what happens. It happens to, um, most people that have, that this is a own, discussion, own ball bag. Yeah. Yeah. This Very is 100% a, a non sequitur. Very yeah. clean. Okay. <laughs> This is here's your last question. And this is a, a sort of open ended. This one is not multiple choice. Most of our listeners are not magicians, but you and I are and think I, I think it, that everyone would find this answer interesting. What is the worst thing about magicians in 2022? Oh, I have to restrict it to this year. <laughs> yeah. Modern day. I don't want to hear about yeah. what was wrong with magicians in the 20s. I want to know in the, in the, in the, in the, in the wow. 1920s, <laughs> in the 2020s, I want to hear. Um, I mean, so I have a book coming out this year called You Are All Terrible, the book. Um, <laughs> and, this, and it's based on my lecture. Yeah, you this, was a, this was a name the of lecture. your lecture for magicians. Yes. And the thesis of it, because I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm split in twain. Um, I'm, I'm a stand-up comic. I do sets where I'm, you know, like when I'm at the cellar, I was at the cellar last night, I did a set stand-up. Um, there's no magic in it at all. Um, and I hang out with a lot of comedians. Um, but obviously I also love magic. I love doing magic. And I just noticed that comedians create their own stuff. Uh, they create their own, they have their own unique point of view. Um, and there is no comedy store that you can go buy a joke that somebody else, you know, teaches you how to do on a DVD and then you just plop that into your act. So my whole sort of, uh, the last 10 years of me running around the world doing this lecture has been basically telling magicians that, you know, 95% of magicians are cover bands. They're doing, other people's material that they saw somebody else do with somebody else's jokes. Um, and they're calling themselves artists and they're cover bands, which it's not, not to say that I don't know people who are in cover bands and they're, they're very happy. Um, but they also know that they're not, or, like, there's a difference between being the Beatles and being a Beatles cover band. Uh, and, in, and in magic, there's a lot of people playing imagination and then imagine, and then thinking they're John Lennon. Sure. So I think that's still the problem. Um, there are original artists out there. And I think most magicians heroes are. So like Penn and Teller, your Copperfields, um, all those guys, um, Matt King, Amazing Jonathan. I mean, there's so many guys out there um, and girls, obviously, uh, Tina Leonard, um, uh, Jade. Um, there's so many amazing uh, people, uh, magic people. Um, but uh, 
yeah, I just, I still think we have a long way to go in terms of embracing the idea that if we're artists participating in an art form, then it's your job to do original material at its very base level. That means coming up with an idea first and then figuring out how to do it magically. It never starts with, I bought this cool trick. How do I jam it into my act? Right. That, and we're still fighting that. That is a correct answer. You are invited back on the podcast sometime. Yay, and I get marbles. And you get marbles and a sticker because of your, your last minute Ooh. challenge. All right. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. You can, if you live in New York, go see Harrison at Art House Hotel, Gotham Comedy Club, The Comedy Cellar. You can see when he's at those different places at harrisongreenbaum.com. Uh, yes. where, where can people follow you on social media? At Harrison Comedy on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Wow, all three. You got the same one. That's fantastic. That's good. Oh, yeah. I tried to at Harrison Greenbaum. I was like early adopter for Twitter. Yeah. And they said it was too long. And I was like, hmm. Oh. <laughs> feels... uh, so now it's at Harrison Comedy. Fantastic. Well, go yeah. follow Harrison. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for this week. Next week will be a completely different topic, so send those in on our website. Also, make sure that you join our Facebook page. It's just the Internet Says It's True. I think you can search for facebook.com slash the net says true. Anyway, join, be a part of community. Thanks to Harrison Greenbaum for being my guest. Here's a kid who hates the Dodgers. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. Don't forget to join up on Patreon if you want to see the unedited video of the guest appearance or to hear bonus episodes. You can do that at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. Also, if you learned something that you didn't already know from the show, please visit iTunes and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That's the rule. You gotta do it. That helps us a ton because that's how the algorithm works to get the podcast suggested to more people. And that way we can keep learning something new. If the internet says it's true. The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help to make this show possible. Sean Brown, Catherine Morgan, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Matt McVeigh, Jim Martin, Joanne Martin, and the show's official Emperor Kick Track. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge. Additional music this week was from DJ Williams and Jeremy Blake. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17 USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts. And you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Kent. <laughs>